0: From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast
1: with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of June 7th, 2021. On this episode, we recap another series win for the Chicago White Sox, as they won 3 out of 4 games against the Detroit Tigers. It was a series that featured a victory by hitting 4 solo home runs, a walk-off win because the bullpen blew a 7-2 lead, and a 3-0 win by only scoring the second inning. And the one loss has everyone talking about bunting. Again. We'll also have the Minor League Report recapping the week that was for the White Sox affiliates, preview the upcoming series against the Toronto Blue Jays, and at the end of the show, we'll answer your questions in PO Sox. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast. It's Jim Margulis, and hello, Jim. The 2021 Chicago White Sox are 36-23, and 23 and have officially won more regular season games than the 2020 squad. Progress!
2: Yes, Uh, they got the 36th win that would have put them in first last year. So, uh, one year too late for 36 wins to mean
1: anything, but ultimately, yeah, it's it's a nice little step forward. Yeah, the 2021 squad, uh, some additional breakdown as far as their record. Uh, the White Sox are 23-10 and 10 at home. I mean, that is eye-opening and a good thing, uh, especially with increased capacity expanding up to 100% the next time the White Sox have a homestand. So this last homestand, a uh, series of home games against the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, will still be 60% capacity. I believe their next series against Tampa Bay at home will be 100% capacity. Uh, So if you haven't gotten a chance to watch the White Sox in person, uh, I recommend doing so because they're winning a lot of games at home. They do have a 500 record on the road, but that's a pretty good road record. Uh, Teams aim to be at least 500 on the road, especially contenders. The White Sox are 5-2 against Detroit after this series uh, for the season, and they are 21-12 against the American League Central. If 2021 was like 2020 and it was a 60 game season, the White Sox would be the number two seed to start the postseason against (inaudible) Oakland. Some things change, some things don't. Anyways, let's start the conversation, Jim, with Dylan Cease, who was outstanding in his start on Sunday. Seven innings pitched, five hits allowed, one walk, 10 strikeouts. The White Sox posted these numbers on their Twitter account. Dylan Cease is now 7-0 and with a 1.91 ERA. That's 47 strikeouts, and he's got a two twenty three opponents average against him. He is the first White Sox pitcher to win their first seven starts against Detroit since Mark Burley did it from 2001 to 2005. Dylan Cease, the Tiger Tamer. Jim, why is Cease so good against Detroit?
2: I think it's, you know, the, I think the simplest answer is because his career basically overlaps with the Tigers bottoming out, like basically hitting rock bottom and having to build themselves all up all over again. Cause I'm looking at the 2019 Tigers and that's the team that finished 47 and 114. And, uh, let's, let's, let's remember some guys here, go through the lineup. Um, catcher, Grayson Griner, first baseman, oh, yeah. Brandon Dixon. Remember him? I don't uh Gordon Beckham at second Jordy Mercer at short Dowell Lugo at uh third Kristen Stewart left field Jacoby Jones center Nick Castellanos right field so I mean like he had some name recognition and then Miguel Cabrera is always there but yeah otherwise they had the uh you know Nico Goodrum is familiar uh, uh Heimer Candelario is familiar but like those guys were not good then they were rookies getting started basically getting their feet wet and yeah, so you look at that uh, lineup and yeah, there, there's nobody with staying power. It's, I imagine, even like I'm you know, looking at the year after, you know, nobody really of note, you know, you know, Candelario got decent, Goodrum got decent, although Goodrum bought them out last year, but just like they've had, um, they're still waiting for their fixtures offensively. They have some guys who are decent and could have jobs in other teams, but this entire Tigers franchise, as Cease knows them, are just kind of a non entity offensively.
1: Sure, but Lucas Giolito couldn't prevent the home runs that he allowed in his start. And, you know, the White Sox lost the Lucas Giolito start in this series, which I'm pretty surprised about. And we'll talk about that game in particular in a moment here. I guess, you know, for Dylan C's being the number four, or let's just say back end starter of this rotation, at least he's beating the bums, right? This is a recurring mm-hmm. theme on this podcast the last few weeks because we've seen the White Sox have home series, weekend series against Baltimore and Detroit in back to back weekends. And the White Sox have taken care of business for the most part against these two teams. And, Seven and eight. Cease against Cleveland, not good. And that's not a good lineup that Cleveland has. Detroit, not a good lineup. But this team has been playing better baseball of late. In their last 26 games, I think the Detroit Tigers are now 15-11. and 11. Uh, So they are playing better baseball as of late. Uh, but Cease, no matter who's in the lineup, even if it's a lineup filled with bums... Uh, he looks really impressive and he makes fans want to buy more stock in him. And I, I, I just want to have the nickname mm-hmm. stick forever, Jim. I like Dylan sees the tiger tamer. If there's anything that he accomplishes in his career, beating up the Detroit Tigers, at least gives him a cool nickname.
2: Yeah, it, it's, yeah. I, I hope he becomes known for a little bit more than that, you know, tiger and, um, <laughs> yeah, perhaps Cleveland, whatever Cleveland ends up being next, you know uh spider killer or something spider exterminator um yeah it's yeah i'm looking at his game log and yeah it's pretty much uh synced up pretty well in terms of his best starts coming against weaker opponents um but the thing i guess that comes to mind when looking at these starts and especially like say the the start against the yankees which he where he kind of unraveled I wonder if, you know, teams with better lineups like the Twins and, you know, I guess at times the Twins, uh, the Yankees, uh, Cleveland, who at least has, you know, some star power up top and is familiar to the uh, Cease, who knows his tricks, basically. Uh, I wonder if they're just a little bit deeper and a little bit more able to get to Cease the second time or third time through the way that, like, weaker opponents like the Tigers, like the Orioles... Uh, might not ha- you know, they just might have, not have the capabilities or the talent to really capitalize on what they even might sense is coming.
1: Hmm. I think that's a good observation. Is his T-top numbers bad this year? I didn't look that up before we started recording.
2: I think I'm looking it up right now. I was on his baseball reference page already. So uh, they're bad the second time through. They're worse second time through. Third time through, they're okay. So that's probably a case where if he gets to a third time through, he's actually doing pretty well. Especially like with his early cluster of starts where he only lasted like you know four innings uh, on average, to where like he might not have gotten too deep the third time through. Uh, That's just my guess. Um, It's he's a hard pitcher I think to evaluate on the whole just because he's had basically two different modes. He had the old cease up top, and now he's got this better version as of late. You know the old cease occasionally surfaces for half a start here or uh, maybe a full start there, but. You know he's able to at least get off to better starts than he did uh, earlier in the season, and then like you know last year and even his rookie season too, where he just had the bad first inning and settled in. I think the biggest jump to me is that uh, in this newer version, he comes out pretty mm-hmm. hot most of the time.
1: Is he still getting beat up in what was it was at the fourth inning or fifth inning? Let me go back. Let's see. Because because now that you mentioned with the t top that he's getting beat up the second time. Facing the lineup, I think that there was some type of huge spike in ERA by inning, and Cease is getting beat up in the fourth inning. Obviously, not on Sunday, as he shut out the Tigers. Yeah, this is the
2: fourth inning, uh, 9.31 ERA. Woo! So it goes 3.2, 2.45, 2.45, 9.31, 3.68. And he's got a zero ERA when he pitches into the sixth and seventh. So basically, like, you know, the third time through numbers are a product of rolling. And if he if he's gonna be bad, he's gonna be bad the second time through. If not, and it's probably somewhat a byproduct of the offenses he's facing.
1: Wow. I did okay, so I I remember reading somewhere that it was high. I didn't think it was above nine. <laughs> Yeah, it will, it will be coming down. It will be coming down right after pitching a scoreless fourth, but it's still not going to be good, Jim. So, well, so the thing about
2: inning stats is you can only improve them uh, one at a time. <laughs> it's so, very true. Even in the great start, he was only at ten point. Yeah, he was at nine and two thirds innings beforehand, and now he's going to be ten 2 thirds innings. So, it's it's going to take him another probably 15 starts for that fourth inning ERA to be palatable. Yeah,
1: 15 clean fourth innings. Well, I guess yeah. that's something to look forward to in Cease's next start, uh which is on track to be Detroit in Detroit. So, we'll see if Dylan Cease can uh extend uh his outstanding start against the Detroit Tigers and make it 8 0 in his first eight starts against the Detroit Tigers in his career but dylan Cease, the tiger tamer i like the nickname i hope it sticks moving from dylan Cease to a very popular topic over the weekend and it's the one loss over the weekend and it has everyone talking about bunting and if you have been listening to this podcast for a while this is our eighth season podcasting you know how we feel about bunting if you are new to the show I think our consensus, Jim, and I, and I list it down, I think, what you and I agree on is acceptable bunting situations. Tied game in the ninth inning, the White Sox are the home team moving a runner from second to third base with no outs. Or there's a runner on third base attempting a walk-off safety squeeze. Or if a hitter has a severe shift with no one covering third base, trying to lay down a bunt for a hit down the third baseline. Am I forgetting any other acceptable bunting scenarios that you and I have discussed over the years?
2: Are you ruling out like, say like somebody like Larry Garcia, who's, you know, besides when he gives himself up because he doesn't want to swing the bat, but just like a guy who has that in his arsenal, like a chaos agent trying to get a single bunting for a hit. Yes. Yes. And taking the sacrifice, but yeah, bunting for a hit ultimately. Um, Yeah. If we're just talking about strict sacrifice situations, that's about it. Occasionally, you know, there are some hitters who are so poor against a pitcher. So tough, like righty on righty, like a righty killing righty. And uh, it's just not going well where the batter says like, okay, you know, I don't like my chances and there's a better chance on deck. Like that's not bad. I accept that. I don't root for it, but at least I get it.
1: Yeah. The, I have no chance against this guy. Bunt. (laughs)
2: Yeah. All right. And and the extra base might help more than a strikeout or a double play.
1: Yes. Okay. So we're on the same page. So we can both agree based on what we just laid laid out that down by one run in the sixth inning, runners on first and second, nobody out, facing Derek Holland, that Danny Mendick laying down a bunt was a bad idea no matter what the outcome was.
2: Yes, I think that's my least favorite form of bunt is the one that happened there where Derek Holland hadn't retired any of the eight White Sox he faced all year, four in his first appearance, and then the first four of the second appearance, including Zach Collins, who tried to bunt but walked. Like when he just can't uh, get the job done, he hasn't shown the ability to get out when the White Sox have personally seen what Holland looks like when he struggles bunting with a righty yeah with Danny Mendick at the plate uh a righty against a lefty who can't get righties out or at least White Sox righties out and throwing him that lifeline like giving him that footing like even if the bunt were decent and it turned into a sacrifice bunt that's still he's still two batters closer to getting out of the inning than he was uh before or at least he's he's one batter closer to getting out of the inning than he was before um and and Mendick, given the way he's swinging the bat and struggling, like you can say, like that's why he's bunting. But also, like if he can't swing the bat against a guy like Holland, who came into the game with a nine ERA and just is struggling against the White Sox, a team designed to kill somebody like him, uh, then if Danny Mendick is not allowed to swing the bat there, why is he on the roster? So I think there are two questions about it. You know, there's the bunt, and then uh, what does Danny Mendick do if he can't hit that kind of pitcher? So that's, I think why it's doubly frustrating.
1: Yeah. After the game, I tweeted out that these are the flights from Charlotte to Chicago that Adam Engel should be on because I felt that with Engel proving that he's healthy down at Charlotte, there was going to be a swap where Danny Mendick was going to get optioned to Charlotte and Engel was going to join the team. But unfortunately, Billy Hamilton has to go on the injured list with an oblique injury. So that makes it easy for the White Sox to send Hamilton to the injured list and call up Adam Engel and Danny Mendick is still on the 26-man roster uh, until Billy Hamilton rejoins the team or if Tony La Russa just has lost all confidence in Danny Mendick and they decide they want to swap out Mendick for somebody else on the, on the 26-man roster. Uh, that, that was my feeling, Jim, after the game. Uh, but obviously with Hamilton going on the injured list, uh, optioning Mendick uh, did not happen. In the short term, as far as the impact of that bunting decision, it may have cost the White Sox a chance to take the lead. In the the previous game, so the night before, the White Sox bullpen blew a five-run lead. So I'm not exactly sure why Larusa wanted to play for a run or even two runs max in that situation Mm -hmm. against Eric Holland. I'm in the opinion in the sixth inning... You want to pile up as many runs as possible. Uh, Don't settle for a tie because your bullpen is currently fickle at the moment outside of Liam Hendricks. And we'll talk about Hendricks a little later in this show. So that's how I felt as far as the short term. Like whether or not you agree with Bunting or not agree with Bunting, I'm not sure why in the sixth inning you are deciding that that's the situation to bunt. You know, don't play for a tie. In the sixth inning, keep piling up the runs because you don't know if the bullpen is going to have a successful transfer to Liam Hendricks because the night before they did not, yeah. uh, and it required a walk-off win. So I'm, I, I'm a bit surprised that they they played for the one run in that situation.
2: Yeah. the The other thing too is like every batter Derek Holland is out there
1: for is a gift. Yeah. Yeah. That and to they're basically refusing that gift. It was an odd, it was an odd decision, but I want to talk about the long term because I don't believe the bunting is going away because this strategy has always been in Larusse's playbook, and I'm referencing a 2004 article, so an old article from Baseball Perspectives that was after Game One of the 2004 World Series. St. Louis lost that Game One, eleven to nine. In the second inning, they were down four to nothing as Boston came red hot out of the gate. You know, they had that incredible comeback in the American League Championship Series against the Yankees. It's the first World Series appearance since 1986, and the Red Sox put up four runs in the first inning. But the Cardinals had something going the second inning. Jim Edmonds and Reggie Sanders were on first and second base with nobody out. And next was Tony Womack. And in the second inning, Womack laid down a sacrifice bunt that moved Edmonds and Sanders 90 feet up. Mike Matheny, current manager of the Kansas City Royals, hit a fly ball to score Admins for a sacrifice fly, and so Degachi struck out, and that was the end of the inning. Now, baseball prospectus defended LaRusse's thinking in 2004 because we have to consider the hitter in that situation. Tony Womack was a weak hitter, but he consistently was a league leader in bunt hits. He was a good bunter. He can get the job done. He's facing Tim Wakefield in this situation, a knuckleballer, someone who doesn't throw high heat, easier to get a bunt down because of limited velocity. And Baseball prospectus also advocated understanding who is hitting behind Womack with Mike Matheny and Sotigachi who are not great hitters. But if they manage to put the ball in play, at least the Cardinals can grind their way to scoring a single run. So everyone from all sides of baseball can have an argument about that play, which happened 16 and a half years ago, Jim. But that play mm-hmm. happened 16 and a half years ago, and it came up again on Saturday. And again, LaRusso wanted to sacrifice Bunt, and in his postgame uh, presser, he defended the decision to Bunting. And I think ultimately his in-game with Mendick Bunting was to give Tim Anderson is shot with with runners on second and third uh, with one out and see if Anderson can drive in at least one run. Whether you agree with that logic or not, I think we should all agree that the bunting is not going away. This isn't a Rick Renteria is learning situation and the White Sox stop with the sack bunting like we saw in 2020. In 2021, we are seeing a lot of sacrifice bunts from the White Sox. And we will continue to see sacrifice bunts from lesser White Sox hitters, because that's what Tony La Russa believes in. Jim,
2: yeah, going through his baseball reference uh, history year over year, you know the, you know he's not somebody who routinely, habitually r- led the league with sacrifice bunts. The Cardinals tend to be middle of the pack, sometimes you know often below average. It seemed like you know when they did have surges, it was specific players that he liked having bunt, um, like you know the Brendan Ryans and Skip Shoemakers and other of those. You uh, know Daniel Descalso is another guy, just these you know kind of yeah, slappy middle infielder utility type guys, and that's why I like you know having Leory Garcia on the roster is basically like that kind of guy for the White Sox. Having Billy Hamilton there, you know Danny Menick, I guess would fit in that role. Uh, it, that that kind of mold, at least, of bunting guys over. So it seems like, yeah, they just have some guys who can facilitate that. Now, that might be a product of, like, Luis Robert being hurt with Eloy Jimenez being hurt. Um, You know, maybe if he had Renteria's lineup from last year, we had a healthy Robert and Jimenez for basically the entire season, maybe he feels no compulsion to bunt either. But as long as, like, he looks his outfield and sees... An outfield at one point that was Vaughn, um, Mendick and Jake Lamb left to right, which uh, is what, the plan T outfield? I'm trying to figure out like, how many uh, you know, iterations they have already gone through. Uh, but you know, when you look at that outfield, he says, Well, yeah, I don't know if La Russa looks at his lineup card or the the diamond and says, uh, well, I know what I have to do. And basically like, you know, like jumps into action and when nobody really called for him. Like, yeah, you know, kind of like the, uh, the old comedy trope. Did somebody say bunt? And nobody actually said it. That's my impression of what he's trying to do. So I'm hoping that, you know, maybe by the second half of the season, you know, when Robert comes back, you know, or knock on wood, you know, if Robert comes back, if Jimenez comes back, and they look like they're guys to take over one job or another, whether it's left field or DH or what have you, that it'll be like Renteria in 2020 when he looked at that lineup card and said, like, where are the bunts coming from? You know, in this case, Adam Eaton, maybe for a hit. Uh, Nick Madrigal, maybe, although he's good enough with the bats. They think like he's, you know, hasn't bunted as often as somebody like him, somebody shaped like him might. So perhaps that's the one thing where I'd say the bunting might go away is if the lineup is so stacked top to bottom and so, like, you know, bunt averse in terms of their history. That maybe you know Larusa will be facing the same thing that Renteria had, where he just looked at the lineup card and people asked him if he's going to st- still maintain a small ball, and you know Renteria basically said like pointing the lineup card said where, <laughs> you know, where are the one's going to come from, who's going to be squaring around, and and you know even he saw that, so I think Larussa might be able to say the same thing. I will say that you know at least I would say regular season. I think in the World Series, when playing for a run becomes so magnified for managers, people making those decisions. I think he could fall back into it, but I think at least regular season mode, he might let up if the outfield ever normalizes.
1: I still think we're going to see with the weaker hitters. Cause I do agree with you. I don't see Tim Anderson laying down a bunt unless he decides that's what he's going to do. We're not going to see Yohan Makata try to lay down a bunt uh, in a sacrifice situation. But with Danny Mendick, you mentioned Luis Garcia, Adam Eaton, we've already seen him lay down bunts. I don't think he's going to be bunting for hits because the dude's having trouble running right now. Uh, Even watching him in person, he's still struggling. He legged out that triple, but maybe a healthy Adam Eaton makes that an inside the park home run uh, on Sunday. Yeah, I, I just don't think it's going to go away because they're currently tied with the Los Angeles Angels for most sacrifice attempts in the American League so far in 2021. Uh, The White Sox are more successful than the Angels, though. They are 14 for 20, sacrifice bunting this season, so 70%. And, yeah, if we come across this situation again, no matter what inning, maybe not no matter what inning, maybe if it's the 6th inning or 7th inning again, runners in 1st and 2nd, bad bullpen pitcher on the mound, and it's Danny Mendick or Lurie Garcia hitting, I'm expecting that a bunt is coming. And I wonder if opposing teams are going to make, are going to start making that assumption as well when they are facing the bottom part of the white Sox lineup, Jim.
2: Yeah. We've seen that with Renteria when the infield's playing way in, he still called for a bunt and then got mad that the bunt wasn't successful. Uh, There is that stubbornness there inherently. I think with Garcia, you know, he's, he's somebody who bunts on his own. So it'd be hard to tell. That's like a signal, a noise thing where just, uh, He's got a history of just giving himself up to the point where, who knows, but there was that problem with Renteria too, just that he instilled such a mentality for bunting and giving oneself up that guys started doing it themselves, even when it wasn't his idea or he didn't want them to. And that's a problem too. Like that's just, uh, you know, not, you're not teaching or setting standards for, Situations, or I guess um, you're you not uh, as a manager, you're not telling your offense, "I have faith in you to get this done with your swings." Right, and so and and so I think that you know, because even Moncada would bunt. Yep. Uh, during the Renteria era, and, and, and until like the you know, the last year when the offense was so stacked top to bottom that uh, everybody swung away, but uh, when you have that kind of ambiguity. That's, I think, when, you know, guys like Garcia can just start doing it thinking like, well, as long as the guy moves, it's a good idea. Like, <laughs> as long as it's successful, uh, I get high fives in the dugout and butt pats. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that's not necessarily, I think Rentria saw the, the folly in that sometimes, or just like that, uh, he, he saw what bunting overload can do um, and, and causing some self-defeating habits. And backed off at La Russa, you know, it's, it's hard to tell just because he is a hall of famer baseball person and he is now second all time in managerial wins, uh, between, you know, Connie Mack and John McGraw. So what do you say to a guy like that? You know, who's, who's, you know, done everything. It's, you know, we can complain about it, but just, you know, he, he doesn't care. Like he doesn't care about public input. Um, yeah, that's ultimately, I think, a good trait of managers, but like Renteria at least, you know, sensed that, that just like, oh yeah, this is, uh, I, I think the, the the public questioning from the media helped at least, allowed him to set the record straight when he realized that Bunting, the White Sox were
1: past Bunting. Internally, if Shelly Duncan is telling Tony La Russa that was not the time and place to lay down a Bunt or call for a Bunt, do you think Larusa's listening to Shelley Duncan? And an old dog learns a new trick. I I don't know. I mean, because we we have had that
2: conversation before, where you you don't hear much about the coaching staff, right? You hear a little about Jerry Naran, but that's mostly with the catchers because he's hands on with you know he has a history of improving catchers, and uh, you know a guy like Zach Collins needs hands on help, um, and and you know Grandall's had the knee injuries and catcher interferences, so we've heard more from Naran. but I mean like yeah Shelly Duncan haven't heard much from uh Miguel Cairo have heard nothing about uh you know Niren in a non-catching capacity haven't heard anything from him a little bit from Joe McEwing when it comes to infield instruction um but yeah just we haven't heard much from the coaches and even Ethan Katz when it comes to like strategy whether it's uh you know run expectancy or uh pitcher deployment it all seems to you know and maybe that's like LaRusse's model just you know him being who he is and having such a loyal coaching staff throughout the years where he's like he it's he's the buck stops here guy and it doesn't really matter about you know um, delegating or sharing credit because he's had just the same decision making engine for so long with st louis with dave duncan and uh um uh, Dave McKay. Uh, yeah, I think it was, I remember it was McKay. I think it was Dave McKay. Um, but yeah, just had the same coaches all around and it, you know, this, everybody knew who he, you know, everybody knew who everybody was, but ultimately Larusa was the guy and it was Larusa's staff. You know, that just could be a product of this where, um, you know, having, uh, LaRusso there just means Larusa makes the decisions. There's no shared credits or blame.
1: Well, the next time the White Sox have runners on first and second, nobody out and Derek Holland is on the mound. Let's hope that it's the top half of the White Sox lineup hitting. <laughs> Cause then I don't yeah. think we'll see a sacrifice bunt being laid down, but if it is against the bottom half of the lineup based on his past tendencies, and that's why I bring up the 2004 game one of the world series and even a place like baseball prospectus, which will score any manager that lays down Uh, Not smart idea bunts, especially sacrifice bunts in the situation that Danny Mendick. I think that we're going to still see this throughout the 2021 season until Jim made the point until Luis Robert and Aloy Jimenez come back. And this lineup is much deeper and it's harder to see which guys are going to be your bunters in the lineup. Yeah, although, you know, I'm also wondering now,
2: looking at La Russa's history with the Cardinals, that, um, you know, perhaps with uh, facing the Tigers, maybe he had 2006 flashbacks <laughs> where bunting led to wild success.
1: Yeah, they bunted the Tigers to death.
2: <laughs> yeah, and so maybe he just saw the uniform and just thought, I know what happens here. I know it works, and it did this time. Uh, we got a question uh, you related to La Russa in in... Uh, P.O. Sox about, you know, I mentioned that he'd passed, uh, um, John McGraw for second all time in, uh, managerial wins and Connie Mack's ahead of him. And we got a question from Rob and P.O. Sox asking how long will Jerry have to sign Larusa for? So he can collect the 970 or so wins. He needs to pass Connie Mack. <laughs> and, uh, I figured if you need uh, like basically I took like say if this is like a good decade for the White Sox, and I would say like the decade from two thousand to two thousand nine was a good decade for the White Sox, they mm-hmm. averaged like eighty-six wins. Basically eleven more years. So La Russa would be eighty seven, Reinsdorf would be ninety-six. All right.
1: Let's not do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's just that's just how I feel. Let's not let's let's not do that. I'm all for the White Sox averaging 86 wins a season over the next 11 years. (laughs) I'm just, uh, I'm ready for somebody else to own the team and somebody else to be managing uh, late, you know, definitely in the back half of those 11 years. So I don't, you know what, there's nothing wrong being the second all time wins leader as far as managers go. Especially when the uh, top guy of the list owned the team. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. La
2: Russa owns the record among managers who were hired.
1: Well, there you go. That's how he could differentiate himself. Hall of Famer baseball person, Tony La Russa. Uh, one other, you know, I got other notes from this weekend that I wanted to touch on. Uh, welcome back Adam Engel. What a play in center field. We, we mentioned Dylan C shutting out the tigers. Uh, maybe if somebody else was playing in center field, he does allow a home run. Uh, but with Adam Engel in center field, a great way to reintroduce yourself to white Sox fans, robbing that home run an outstanding play that he made. And with Billy Hamilton out, Jim, uh, Adam Engel should be starting in center field every game, right? Pretty much. Or maybe like, you know,
2: given that he's coming back from an injury and, and still working himself into game shape, you know, I could see like three out of four, you know, for the first couple of weeks, just to get acclimated to, uh, you know, the major league grind after being away for two months. But yeah, he's basically there. Uh, yeah, that, that play was incredible. I was thinking about it, just watching him that, you know, he's Hadn't played in the park for yeah you know, the entire year, and base first game back he's tested on a play where he needs to measure every step, and somehow he nailed it. And you know, we saw Luis Robert get stuck up against the wall. We've seen uh, uh, Larry Garcia not measure it right. Even Billy Hamilton, like he's got a history of making those catches, but I wonder in guaranteed right field, a, a field that's still not you know his own the way that you know Engel owns the warning tracks in left and right center. Uh, over the years like even Hamilton might not make that catch given uh, you know the time that angle had to measure it uh, with the wind blowing like he had to basically like uh, he, his measuring was done by getting to the warning track looking at the wall and knowing how much time he had to basically hit the wall and turn around uh, and I don't know if a guy like Hamilton who's still relatively new to the park if he could do that so that was really an impressive play
1: yeah just watching him again in center field being in the stands and and I love watching how center fielders react and how quickly they react, because Luis Robert has one of the quickest reactions uh, I have seen, uh, especially when the bat, le- when the ball leaves the bat and heading to his direction. And Adam Engel is right there with Luis Robert. I mean, this guy, Adam Engel, was someone that could have walked on, I think, at Ohio State to play football as a defensive back, uh, and you could just see that because he moves backwards so well. He caught a line drive, kind of running backwards, backpedaling. Uh, that was pretty impressive. So his ability to quickly get to the warning track and get to the wall and not lose track of the ball's flight path and still being able to make that catch is is incredible. That's why if Adam Engel was an everyday starter, Jim, I think Adam Engel would be right there with Luis Robert and Byron Buxton and competing for the gold, the gold glove in the American League or e- even in the National League. That's how highly I think of his defensive ability in center field. And with Billy Hamilton out, I I guess Louie Garcia can have a start once in a while in center field. Uh, Mm -hmm. But with Adam Engel in tow, I never want to see the, the Andrew Vaughn, Jake Lamb and Danny Mendick outfield configuration again. Yeah. (laughs) That's really no knock on Mendick though. I mean, he's been decent for doing, he's holding his own.
2: Yeah. But just, yeah, it's, it's the, you know, I mean, it's a knock on Vaughn, but just the, was it the, uh, Jerry Owens, Darren Erstad,
1: Scott Pazetnik Outfield. At least you could look at that and say, hey, three speedy guys.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah, it's it's rough right now, uh, depth-wise. But yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that in, Angle has no, you know, relapses or setbacks. I was a little bit worried watching the Charlotte game logs and seeing him miss a game here and there. So that's why I'm thinking that it might make some sense to have him like start three of four, just to um, you know, make sure you don't push him because if he goes, you know, if he uh uh, uh, if he's feeling a little bit sore and that leg blows out on him again, then they're really in trouble because Hamilton's oblique injury look kind of serious.
1: Yeah. Fingers crossed that, uh, that it is not because I'm with you, Jim. If Adam Engel has to go on the injured list, then it's Lurie Garcia and Luis Gonzalez. Blake
2: Rutherford. Yeah. Luis Gonzalez. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It gets, it gets tricky in center field for the White Sox real quick. Other thoughts that I had watching the games this weekend Nick Magical's on a tear. His last 15 days, Magical is hitting 365 with a .411 on base percentage. He's slugging 519 in his last 14 games. <laughs> What's got it into Nick Magical, Jim?
2: Well, I'm looking at his numbers right now. I want to see his strikeout numbers from the last 15 days. Real quick. There you go. Sortable team stats. This is really exciting. He struck out Western. seven times. But I remember when he talked yeah so that's i think like we we talked about that before and and i mentioned that like sometimes when he you know earlier in the season when he was you know the the extra base hits had dried up like it felt like he was making contact for contact's sake almost like uh i'm known for not striking out so every time i strike out people get bummed and i'm not giving the people what they want to see (laughs) i think uh We've seen that now that uh, people like when Nick Madrigal hits homers and gets extra base hits and uh, pulls the ball in the air. So if he gives a, you know, if he's striking out, uh, you know, how many plate appearances that let's see last 15 days. Uh, we're looking at magical seven strikeouts over
1: yeah, like 55, plate
2: 56 of, plate yeah. appearances. So yeah, just like the strikeouts uh, rates higher than 10%. And that's really, you know, disappointing for people who like seeing, you know, marveling over like single digit strikeout rates, but if he can, you know, slug 519 or even like have an ISO comfortably over a hundred uh, for long stretches, like that's where you trade strikeouts. You know, that you, you you dip into that contact reserve <laughs> and uh, exchange some of those, uh, um, you know, weak grounders for swings and misses, but extra base hits. I think that's why you make contact. I mean, that's kind of what Gavin Sheets is doing in Charlotte. It's like what he's trying to do is he made good contact in Birmingham, but you know, being a lumbering first base type, that you know, just getting, you know, having a, an above average on base percentage and a below average slugging percentage, not really great for his profile. And I think with Madrigal, you know, the, his hit tool is such that the OBP will always be there, but in order to really, you know, capitalize, he needs to get to second base on his own. And if he's not going to do it stolen base wise, then uh, I think, you know, opening up a little bit, trying to rip the ball, you know, not being afraid of swinging and missing. If uh, contact doesn't really matter, like if there's nobody on base or, a guy in first and and they really need multiple bases at the time. Like just opening it up and not being afraid to strike out, I think is maybe one of the better things he can do.
1: The other notes, uh, Liam Hendricks, the way that he's been pitching in his last 13 appearances is why the White Sox signed him to a $54 million contract. In his Mm -hmm. last 13 appearances covering 11 to two thirds innings pitched. Hendricks has only allowed four hits, no home runs, one run that was unearned walking to and striking out 19 for a while. Jim, we were questioning, you know, just how good is Liam Hendricks? Because mm-hmm. this is not a great first impression, but these last 13 appearances, he has been lights out. Yeah. And he's getting like normal save
2: situations too. That was the hardest thing for me, evaluating Hendricks. Cause you know, closer is basically pass-fail uh you know binary outcome and with Alex Colomay he didn't get the job done well but he got the or yeah you know, pretty you know, in a pretty fashion but he got the job done like and so he was a good closer Hendricks you know he he blew a couple saves he you know he was uh you know gave the home run ball a little bit too frequently early on he had some problems clustering uh that clustering on him he had he had more seven outs uh seventh inning saves than ninth inning saves and Seventh inning saves kind of felt like cheating. He had the bases loaded to walk it. You know, he's thrust into some situations that weren't normal. So it was hard to get that just standard closer feel. Ninth inning, one run, two run lead. Um, Clean inning, you know, uh, inheriting no runners. Just get three outs, get it over with. And now he's kind of getting into that groove where the save situations are normal and he's making them feel easy. And I think that's what we wanted to see.
1: And I enjoyed the version of Liam Hendricks striking out Nomar Mazzara to end the game in 2021 (laughs) compared to 2020. Uh, It's much more enjoyable. So I get it, Oakland A's fans. I I now understand.
2: Yeah, Nomar Mazzara, just seeing him kind of come through and not doing anything.
1: That dude is destined for Korea.
2: Feels like it. Or maybe Japan too. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not
1: get crazy, Jim but yeah, it's
2: just, uh, <laughs> Japan, yeah, just Japan's got good players. <laughs> you well, know, I mean, but it, like a guy like Vicieto has, uh, been a star there. Just some guys who don't have the bat speed or don't quite have the, you know, discipline or just against major league calibers can just, you know, ratchet the, uh, difficulty, uh, down a degree and succeed. So, you know, you know, Mazar, given that he has that Vicieto like profile, of, like 20 Homer seasons and kind of ugly numbers elsewhere, just, yeah, you could maybe get Japan, but one of them. Yeah, just it seems like he's hitting the wall. Yeah, batting one ninety, or will lower than that now. So, yeah, it, it, I think that's maybe a little bit refreshing, is just seeing. Well, yeah, the white. Side, it wasn't strep throat. It wasn't the preseason spring training. Uh, you know, missing that time that threw his schedule off. It wasn't
1: the sixty game uh, season. It was just uh, nothing there. Yep. Hey, speaking of old friends playing overseas, Dylan Covey is playing in Taiwan now. Yeah, mugging it up for the camera. Was he?
2: Yeah, there was like a, it was announced with a couple of uh photos of him and just you know kind of pose yeah, goofy poses and such.
1: Huh. Well, I know yeah. what to get for Pinolls for Christmas this year. Yeah. A racketoon Dylan Covey jersey. <laughs> you heard it here, P Knows. Merry Christmas. Uh and my last note from this weekend. All star voting has begun and in early June. How many all-stars do you think the White Sox currently have? Good question.
2: I think a couple of them is uh, yeah, like Grandal. Mhm. I he might be an all the weirdest all-star.
1: He could yeah. be. Yes.
2: Uh, yeah, uh, I would say Moncada seems like a lock. Uh yep. Lance Lynn based on his ERA and win-loss record seems yep. like a lock. Uh Hendricks seems like a lock way he's pitching and the way like relief staffs are picked those are kind of my three right now Gilido, i think can pitch his way in Abreu can hit his way in but they're kind of on the outside right now so yeah. that's kind of who i'm feeling right yeah. now
1: this is who i've got i got you and makata as the starting third baseman for the american league it's going to be a tight voting between him and rafael devers with boston i got lance lynn he won't be the American League starter. That's going to be Garrett Cole. I got Carlos Rodon. I got Liam Hendricks. I've got Yasmani Grandal. And also serving as backups, Jose Abreu and Tim Anderson. So right now, I think the White Sox have seven All-Stars. Yeah,
2: Rodon would be one. Yeah, I was thinking more along the lines of just like, do I project him to get to All-Star level by the All-Star break? Not quite, <laughs> but... Uh, I yeah. can see like just hitting a wall a little bit and having to adjust given his irregular workloads the last few years. But yeah, Nia, yeah, this yeah, he's definitely there too. So I missed him.
1: Yeah. So that, that's where I think the white Sox right now have seven. Like if you follow me on Twitter at Sox machine, underscore Josh, I'll update it every week on how I feel, what the all-star team should be in the American and national leagues. And you'll see that, Hey Josh, you only have your Makata listed. Yeah, Yohan Makata should be a starter, but the White Sox are going to have, I think, Lance Lynn, Carlos Rodon, Liam Hendricks will be part of the pitching staff, and I still think Jose Abreu, Tim Anderson, Yasmani Grandal are going to make the roster. They'll be backups, uh, not starters. But right now, yeah, seven All-Stars is what I have on the list, and it'd be great to hear from you guys on how many All-Stars that you think uh, the White Sox currently have. And again, you can go to MLB.com and participate in the All-Star voting, and Get those votes in for Johan Makata, because he's going to have a tough race, I think, in the voting war with Rafael Devers to get him to be the starting third baseman for the American League. But let's catch up on the minor league action next after a quick word from our sponsors.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
2: Welcome to the Meyer League Report. We'll start in Charlotte, where the Knights stopped the Nashville Sound's 15-game winning streak halfway into their six-game series, and salvaged a split. Guys like Luis Gonzalez and Gavin Sheets have enjoyed returning home, hitting a couple homers apiece, and Jake Berger is still providing everyday value. The bigger developments are on the pitching side. Jonathan Stever threw his best start of the season this week, going six scoreless against Nashville on Saturday. Jimmy Lambert threw a season-long four-and-two-thirds innings with seven strikeouts on Sunday, and then there's Mike Wright, the 31-year-old veteran who spent last year in the KBO, has returned to AAA and has a 2.1 ERA over 30 innings, which is quite the accomplishment when half those innings have been in Charlotte's bandbox. He's had chances in the majors and never quite been able to cut it, but this version is getting ground balls and strikeouts, so there's a chance he could serve in Chicago. Birmingham's starting rotation is the main reason why the Barons have had a stranglehold of first place in the former Southern League for basically the entirety of the season. They went 4-1 against the Tennessee Smokies, and Blake Battenfield is leading the way, allowing a total of eight earned runs and four walks over six starts. He's a pitchability guy more than a stuff guy and a staff full of them, including Connor Pilkington, who is challenging him for the team ERA lead. Cade McClure is trailing the pack, but while he's susceptible to a blow-up inning here and there, he's been largely respectable. It's enough to carry an offense that is still incomplete. Micro Adolfo is striking out over 40% of the time, but the contact he makes is quality, and that's how he's still hitting .240 with a .510 slugging percentage, despite all the swinging and missing. Shortstop Roman Gonzalez recovered from a small slump to maintain his .937 OPS, along with seven steals and eight attempts, and catcher Carlos Perez has already matched his career high in homers with three, although his plate discipline is still holding him back. Winston-Salem and Kannapolis had their rosters shuffled mixed results. Nothing stops the Dash from regressing to five hundred, winning three and losing three against Greensboro this week, but at least they're getting production from guys besides Luis Corbello, who's cooled off over the last series. Yolbert Sanchez stepped up and went 8-for-20 with a couple extra base hits and a couple walks, and undrafted free agent Duke Ellis slugged six thirty six. On the pitching side, relief prospect Tyler Johnson started his rehab stint with a dash. He'd been out for the last few weeks after four rough appearances with Charlotte to start the season, and now joins a Winston-Salem bullpen that's pretty deep. The rotation is stumbling a little bit after the promotion of Jason Billis, Isaiah Carranza has hit a bit of a wall in his first taste of pro ball, and Davis Martin and Johan Dominguez had unimpressive weeks as well. Kannapolis doubled its win total in a week by going 2-4 against the Fayetteville Woodpeckers, so they're now 4-25 in the year. The Cannonballers' offense should improve, as Luis Mieses and Harvin Mendoza were both reassigned to Canapolis from Winston-Salem for a more appropriate level of competition, and intriguing prep pick Chase Krogman is off the injured list. Jose Rodriguez and Brian Ramos are still hitting, so they might be able to score some more runs in June once some cohesion develops. The pitching is where it falls apart. Matthew Thompson has pinballed between lousy starts and exciting ones, Andrew Dahlquist hasn't quite gotten it going, and Jared Kelly has been shelved for workload management, I think. If they're still more losing than winning in Kannapolis' future, hopefully those games will be high-scoring slobberknockers. That's it for the minor league report. For prospect updates each day, look for the minor
1: keys post each morning on SoxMachine.com. Next series for the Chicago White Sox is against the Toronto Blue Jays at home. The Blue Jays' record this year is 30-27. and 27. Offensively, they can be dangerous. They're averaging 4.94 runs per game. On the run prevention side, they are only allowing 4.31 runs per game. And the pitching probables for this series is pretty interesting. On Tuesday, we're looking at a Carlos Rodon against Robbie Ray matchup. And as White Sox fans, every time we see a left-handed start on the mound, we start to to drool a little bit. But school maybe have uh, that last appearance against a lefty, maybe have set our, our expectations a little bit lower. Robbie Ray has been pitching much better this year for the Blue Jays as he's finally addressed his walk rate. On Wednesday, the White Sox are going to see rookie standout Alec Manoa. For the Blue Jays and the probable starter for the White Sox, as far as schedule wise, it looks like it will be Lance Lynn for the Sox. And on Thursday, Hinjin Ryu for the Blue Jays against Dallas Keuchel. We're going to get into that matchup in a moment. But Jim, two lefties for the White Sox this series, but two tough lefties for the White Sox. I mentioned as far as Robbie Ray, who has improved this season and Hinjin Ryu is one of the better pitchers in the game. How do you feel about the pitchy matchups in this series between the Blue Jays and White Sox? I think it could put a
2: dent in the left hand mystique because, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, you know Mike Miner, uh, you know besides Scooble, uh, Mike Miner has beaten him a couple times. So uh, decent lefties, you know, fare decently against them. It seems, uh, or, or can can have good nights against them. So if the you know Robbie Ray comes in. I think Robbie Ray and Carlos Rodon are kind of cut from the same cloth a little bit, like just uh, massively inconsistent histories. But when they're good, they're good. And then, you know, uh, having Ryu against Keichel, and as you mentioned, that's a uh, same free agent class there. But, uh, yeah, just they're good lefties, especially now that Ray is fixed like the way Rodon is fixed. And uh, Ryu is back like uh, fully healthy and pitching for a team that can use all the innings he can provide just – uh, these are good measuring sticks for just how good of a right-handed lineup the White Sox have because I think they've, uh, you know, they've, they've proven themselves against good lefties, but this year they're, they, you know, it's like a, just a fuller sample. It's a you know, longer season, um, you know, all the teams now versus just central teams. So I think, yeah, they, some of those weird statistical
1: discrepancies from last year can't even out with a series like this. The Thursday night start, I think, is important for Dallas Keuchel for narrative reasons, Jim. The White yeah. Sox gave Keuchel the money, not Ryu. If Ryu looks like the superior pitcher, some White Sox fans will clamor that Rick Hahn got the wrong guy. But we, we <laughs> don't have any insight on what those negotiations were when the White Sox signed Dallas Keuchel. We, we know that Keuchel wanted to come to Chicago, but I don't recall, Jim, if Ryu said if Chicago was on his preferred destinations list.
2: Yeah, I don't remember much about that at all. Like, or at least what I remember. I mean, I shouldn't say I don't remember much, but I just I don't didn't hear much over the course of the negotiations that the White Sox were ever really in on him. Right. And it's uh, yeah, it's I guess unfortunate when you see the way it's working out. That was a market though where I felt okay about the White Sox getting Keuchel, and and you know Ryu had some you know maybe durability concerns, although you know Keuchel also shared those to a certain degree. So it's uh. When it comes to that class, like, you know, Strasburg's had it rough. Um, you know, Bumgarner had it rough early on. But basically, like, as long as the White Sox spent in the top six, they really couldn't have gone wrong. It's more of a matter of, like, could they have gone righter? <laughs> <And>, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, you know, and, and they could have, but, you know, just like, but Keichel's fine. You know, he helps them towards their goal, so.
1: Yeah, you know, looking back at that free agent class, okay. So Garrett Cole, still the number one pitcher based on performance, uh, who would be your number two so far out of that sign class? Zach Wheeler? Uh, I think
2: yeah, I had to see what Wheeler's been doing because I kind of lost track of him. No, yeah, he's he's leading the NL
1: in innings, inning, so I'd say Wheeler number two. Okay, so Wheeler number two, Ryu number three, Keuchel number four, or do you slide in Strasburg number four?
2: No, Strasburg, he's, he's really looking rough. Okay, so, so Keuchel yeah.
1: fourth, and then you want to try to rank uh, Strasburg against Bumgarner.
2: I think Bumgarner is ahead now just because of health reasons.
1: Uh, so the white Sox, out of those six starting pitchers, we are saying at this moment in June of 2021, they got the fourth best guy. They made a hard run at the guy who's second best right now in Zach Wheeler. But we really don't know if they were in serious negotiations with Hinjin Ryu. We don't know if it was an either or. All we know is that it seemed like plan A was Zach Wheeler and then plan B was Dallas Keuchel and they got their plan B. Mm-hmm. And it's been working out. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And especially since, you know, with Dylan Cease improving and with Carlos Rodan improving, that like, you know, Keichel being, you know, he's kind of like the fifth starter right now and i guess the good news is his last time out you know uh, against detroit he could have gone an inning more it seemed like a very conservative hook by la Russa and not without reason because he gave up a homer in the sixth so i guess he could see like third time through uh you know getting towards 100 pitches some, you are know, trying to get out ahead of potential struggles but you know with the way cody hoyer and uh evan marshall pitched it did not work out but uh Hopefully that was a sign that, you know, Keichel can go deeper into games, be more of that six and seven inning guy than uh, five and six.
1: Offensively for Toronto, there are two hitters White Sox have to pay a lot of attention to. Vlad Guerrero Jr. is going to be the reason why Jose Abreu is not an American League all-star starter. He's hitting, he's got 18 home runs this year. One of the league leaders, he's got 47 RBIs. He's hitting 333 with a 436 odd base percentage and slugging 662. Jim. We've always thought that Vlad Guerrero Jr. could be the next beast in this league, and he is certainly in his beast mode right now, and he's one of the most impressive hitters in all of Major League Baseball.
2: Yeah, it, like he's there like, uh, you know, to a much, much, much lesser extent, like, you know, Biggio and Bichette, like guys we haven't seen in person. I'm really looking forward to the series just because I think Toronto's got like a, a whole lot of young talent we have not seen yet. You know, Manoa's one um, yeah, on the pitching side. But, yeah, seeing Guerrero in person against White Sox pitching in his current form, like I'm not looking forward to it, but I'm also looking forward to it the way, like, you know, we talked about Mike Trout and how it's like it's almost an honor when Mike Trout kicks your ass. <laughs> and, you know, Guerrero doesn't have quite that track record yet, but he could. Like, you know, he's got the talent to where, like, eventually you just you just marvel at the talent more than you, you know, get mad at the score, at least if you're like a you know, baseball fan, as much as you are a White Sox fan. And uh, it's going to be fun, yeah. Because this, you know, I saw what they were trying to do last year, and it was weird for them last year with the, uh, you know, minor league sites, uh, you're trying to pass off a major league experience outside of Toronto, but. As they get good and, and as they as this core kind of solidifies, uh, I really want to see what it looks like.
1: Yeah, because this may be the team outside the American League Central that the White Sox are going to be crossing paths with in the postseasons and the upcoming postseasons. Because as you mentioned, Jim, they have a, a lot of young talent like the White Sox do, and they have really good veteran talent as well. I don't know if George Springer is going to be available in this series, but they spent the money to bring George Springer into the fold to help solidify the lineup Marcus Simeon, man, he's having a really good year. That yeah. was a really good signing by the Blue Jays. Yeah, good to put for him, at him. Second base.
2: Yeah, that's the kind of signing I like to see. Just you know, the uh, the Blue Jays signing a guy who's talented, even if uh, you know he didn't quite fit exactly what they needed on the field. Just like, yeah, we can make use of him. Like I, I right. like those kind of signings. Just like can't pass
1: up the talent at that price. And, you know, honestly, Toronto kind of spends the money that we as White Sox fans wish that Jerry Reinsdorf spends. Uh, yeah, because Simeon's hitting 294. He's got a 365 on-base percentage for the season, and he's slugging 531. He's got 13 homers and 32 RBIs. He's got more home runs than Jose Abreu right yeah. now, which Abreu leads the White Sox. Yeah, so. Toronto
2: leads the league, you know, 84 homers.
1: Yeah, so that that's where it's going to get tricky for this White Sox pitching staff, and and in this particular series. I don't want to be like Han Solo from Star Wars Gym and say I've got a bad feeling about this series. But I think this is a great test to really see, you know, just how real Carlos Rodon and Lance Lynn have been as far as their, their starts this season. I think it's very real, but they're going to have some tough tests here as far as with this Blue Jays lineup. Uh, a Blue Jays lineup, as you just mentioned, Jim, that loves to bash and one of the league leaders in home runs, and then we'll see if Dallas Keiko can keep the ball in the ground. But on the flip side for the White Sox, you know, they got to have to figure out, you know, to generate more offense than they did against Skubal, not strike out 10-plus times against Robbie Ray, and try to muster, you know, good exit velocity numbers, good contact against Hinjin Ryu. And we'll see how the rookie Alec Manoa does, but Manoa looked really good in his start against the New York Yankees. This is a tough series for the Chicago White Sox. So the difficulty gets really turned up for the White Sox after this series against Detroit. And uh, we'll see on how they do against uh, Toronto and, they get Detroit again uh, on the road, and then next week it's the team that has the best record in the American League in Tampa Bay. So that 23-10 and 10 home record is certainly going to be tested in these next two home series, Jim.
2: Yeah, I guess uh, you can look at it two ways. You can say, like, you know, should it go well, and the White Sox are still, um, you know, rolling out their plan T outfield, then I think you can say, like, wow, this is this is a really resilient team that can hold their own against the best outside of the central. Like it's no longer, you're no longer looking at that record adjusted for maybe, you know, the, just the weakest division in the American league, maybe like one of the, you know, contending for the weakest division in baseball. Um, but, you know, should it go poorly? You can say, well, the White Sox have plenty outfield. And once they get healthy, uh, you know, this is not really a measuring stick because they're, they're missing so many guys right now, but just wait until you know, July and August when the outfield is back, then you'll see what they really have. So I think uh, there there are ways you can talk yourself uh, into either outcome, like uh, where anything can be spun. Um, But it would be nice, you know, Jose Abreu had a really rough series. Like, see him come back. And, 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 you know, Tim Anderson, who's been a little bit uneven as of late, see him come back and, and have good series against good teams. I think that would go a long way.
1: Yeah, because it's three against Toronto. It's three against Detroit this upcoming weekend. Next week, it's three at home against Tampa Bay and a four-game road series in Houston. And then the White Sox get a couple days off. They have a two-game series against Pittsburgh. They got a weekend series against Seattle. And they got a four-game series at the end of June going into July against the Minnesota Twins. So tough right now these next couple of weeks it does get easier for the White Sox for a couple of weeks going from June to July. So (laughs) do not jump off the boat in these next 13 games. So the White Sox go six and seven, let's say these next 13 games, because it does get a lot easier for the White Sox in the last two weeks going in from June into July. Yeah. This is what the four game lead is for. Exact. Great point. And thank you, Baltimore. (laughs) Baltimore. (laughs) <laughs> Great weekend by the Orioles uh, against Cleveland this past weekend. But we, we will recap the Toronto series Thursday night after the game on Sox Machine Live. So you guys can look forward to that as we'll have the live stream on youtube.com slash Sox Machine and also on socksmachine.com. And for those that won't stay up and watch us on video, you'll be able to listen to the podcast version that Friday morning when we are done with the video show. So again, we'll be recapping that series on Sox Machine Live on Thursday night. But you guys had questions for us, so let's answer them next in P.O. Sox.
0: You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here
1: is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where you can submit your questions to us on Twitter by following us on Twitter at Machine. However, our Patreon supporters have been flooding the mailbox every single week. So your best way to get your question or topic answered on the Socks Machine podcast is is becoming a Sox Machine Patreon supporter. And to do that, go to patreon.com soxmachine Machine to sign up. And Jim, our first question coming from one of our Patreon supporters, and that's Brett. And Brett is asking, given that the White Sox could use some bullpen upgrades, who are some possible relievers who could be available from teams likely to sell at the deadline? After watching what happened to the Phillies last year when they
2: thought they were improving the bullpen at the deadline uh, and somehow the Phillies' bullpen, which is already bad, got worse under a good manager in Joe Girardi, um, makes me a little bit apprehensive about suggesting any veteran reliever who isn't like just a, a, a pure stuff monster. And when I was looking at the, um, the American League, in, or I should say the Major League Relief leaderboards, looking at strikeout rates, and um, yeah, wins above replacement, ground ball rates, Like looking at uh, you know, players who might meet the descriptions of guys who have sustainable profiles and didn't really see a whole lot of names there jumping out uh, that, that might fit into this bullpen that teams wouldn't want to keep or that, that wouldn't cost like a, a premium to acquire. A few names I saw you know, of just veterans. Uh, Daniel Hudson is one of them. He's going to be a free agent after the year with the Nationals. Uh, depending on what the Nationals think they have. Like he could be somebody who sold off Ian Kennedy with Texas, who, and although having seen Ian Kennedy up close with the Kansas City, uh, not really enthusiastic about that one. And then Sean Doolittle was another one who just has a history of being good and valuable uh, and uh, has some had seen some of his stuff bounce back. Like his Velocity has come back a little bit, um, but still not quite all the way to what he was. Um, you yeah, know, there's a possibility he can improve with reps could also just be a case where he doesn't have enough, but, uh, those are three names I saw. And then, you know, as in rec in the Patreon, uh, PO socks bag, uh, mentioned that David Robertson is pitching for team USA and some of those guys are still looking for jobs. So given that the white Sox and Robertson seem to have a decent relationship and decent experience the last time they pitched, like that's not, I don't think you can completely rule that out if they are looking for right-handed help. Um, I was looking at their roster, and Anthony Carter is on Team USA. I don't know if you remember him.
1: Uh, Barely. Yeah,
2: he never surfaced with the Sox, but he was like a pro- relief prospect of note, uh, you know, cracked some top 10 lists of White Sox uh, prospects during their really fallow years <laughs> in the farm system. Uh, but yeah, I saw Anthony Carter. I was like, that Anthony Carter? And yes, it is that Anthony Carter. So... I don't know if he's a, an idea for the White Sox, but you know, Robertson seemed like, eh, you don't know. Like, uh, you have a good run, and, and I imagine that uh, there will be scouts in attendance, and some of those games will be tracked to where, yeah, they, they might have
1: some data. Well, Team USA has qualified for the Olympics. They won their qualifier. So they're going to Tokyo. And it does make me wonder, Jim, with the David Robertson angle, if he decides, you know what, this could be a once-in-a-lifetime Situation, I'm gonna go play in the Olympics.
2: Maybe I mean he's made enough money and such, but I would also think like just you know reading these quotes like a guy like Todd Frazier who's on Team USA but only because he just kind of fell out of the Phillies and has nowhere else to or uh, Pirates I should say and has nowhere else to go. Um, you know he was talking about how it's an honor to play for his country and play in the Olympics and such, but I, I don't know. I, I wonder if just you would think you know being in a major league team. Pitching for a major league contender is really just the goal, the idea. True. Like, no matter what. True. Yeah, I can see him, like, not wanting to sign a minor league deal and, you know, go to Charlotte instead of the Olympics. Like, I imagine, you know, Olympics, you know, facing against top international competition, like, that's good enough. That's Charlotte grade. You know, there's some pressure there. <laughs> uh, if, if you're tuning up for a major league audition, I don't think the Olympics are that bad of a simulation. So...
1: And that is true. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I've i circled Joaquin Soria on my list. <laughs> I, I was thinking about that over the weekend after Saturday's game and having my morning tea in the Sox machine coffee mug uh, that you got me. And uh, yeah, that's the guy that I had on my list hmm. in the sense of he's 37. The prospect cost will not be high. He's going to be a free agent after this season. The Diamondbacks are terrible. Just go get it done. (laughs) I guess I was looking at guys who were performing. (laughs) Well, hey, now, hey, Joaquin story is having a decent season, rarely used, and hitters still can't barrel him up. So I'm I'm thinking, you know, with Matt Foster not existing anymore, uh, why not have him throw the innings that Cody Hoyer has been throwing lately while Hoyer still struggles from time to time? Not asking him to be an eighth inning guy. Yeah, a sixth inning guy would be fine.
2: Yeah, I mean it's yeah he's been roughed up as late as ERA is kind of inflated on the past couple outings. So uh, yeah, it's it's an idea. I was just looking at like guys who could make an impact versus like flyers. That'd be more of a flyer. Uh, But yeah, right now they could probably use bodies. Although Ryan Burr has looked okay. Yeah. It's These hard to tell a- with Charlotte, just, you know, Charlotte being such an extreme warped pitching environment, you know, and bird looked like nothing special, but I mean, like he's looked fine
1: mm-hmm.
2: with the white Sox so far. Like, you know, just who knows Zach birdie comes up. Maybe he looks a bit better. Uh, hard to tell Coors field.
1: East is Charlotte. Pretty much, especially that super bouncy ball. But Brett, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Mark and Mark is asking, according to sports illustrated, the White Sox have the second highest year-over-year increase in spin rate among all Major League teams. If Major League Baseball cracks down at pitch doctoring, will the White Sox be impacted? I mean, they could just because,
2: you know, that's kind of been the whole reason why teams have not been aggressive on asking for uh, equipment or hats or, you know, necks, forearms to be inspected uh, with substances just because their own pitchers might be using uh, random concoctions on their equipment to get better grips and better spin rates. But uh, it seems like, you know, I was looking at, you know, year over year spin rates, and it doesn't seem like there are any aberrations. Uh, They did add Lance Lynn, who's uh, very good in that department. They got Michael Kopech back, who's good in that department. And Dylan Cease is a little bit better too. Those seem to be like the three big improvements year over year. So, you know, those are guys they acquired from the outside or guys who came back from injury or guys who are still developing as pitchers. So those don't strike me as like when you're looking at like a team improvement, it looks like those are just, you know, actual documentable reasons uh, of how they got better. And, and not like the Garrett Cole suddenly going to the Astros and gaining thousands of RPM, uh, or hundreds, I should say, of RPM, uh, just because uh, you know he might have learned a technique from a new organization. That's not quite what's happening here. And I was also looking at um, you know recent starts, just because there were some murmurs. Like Garrett Cole, his spin rate dropped a lot his last start. Trevor Bauer, his spin rate dropped last start. But you have two guys who are. You know, Cole has been—it's been pointed out how his spin rate jumped going to Houston. Bauer has been one of those guys who have pointed to Cole, and then who have also just kind of, uh, you know, trolled Major League Baseball, you know, basically allowing his spin rate to fluctuate based on, you know, hinting something's going to happen and then going out and making his spin rate jump. Um, and, and so, seeing their spin rates come down suddenly, just as things are going to be start policed uh, or policing is going to be enhanced, like. Uh, the White Sox didn't seem to have that turn recently. So uh, you had Liam Hendricks, who was saying that you know he was well, yeah you know, he welcomed it as long as it was evenly applied and not just kind of random stop and frisk across the league. Some teams getting it more than others, and so like it seems at least right now, all signs, statistical, um, you know, when it comes to track records, when it comes to quotes, that. Uh, there are no obvious signs that the White Sox are benefiting more than any other team. They still could get busted. <laughs> like, uh, it's, it's really hard to know because this has been, you know, as, as Mike Schultz said after Gallegos was busted during the Cardinals White Sox game, like baseball's dirty little secret, and it seems like every team has their guys who rely on it more than others, and so
1: I think everybody's going to be holding their breath a little bit. I'm going to be looking forward to the Josh Donaldson versus Garrett Cole matchups later this season. Yeah. If their paths cross.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Donaldson is uh, I mean, we saw it last year, just, you know, complaining about, um, uh, strike zones on a, uh, on, on a plate appearances that ended with a homer. He still got ejected and then complained about it. You know, just, he gets uh, very indignant and he feels like it's a righteous indignation. So he's no stranger to uh, getting on a soapbox and, uh, and, 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 in preaching a little bit and uh yeah when he's doing it against umpires that's one thing because umpires are kind of a common enemy against hitters <laughs> to a large degree but singling out a player i think is new territory for him so i'm curious to see like but having seen bauer do it um yeah i'm it seems like something that could you know fracture the union a little bit it's like pitchers versus hitters the way steroids kind of did Um, and and made steroid testing kind of a wedge issue among the union. So I wonder if this is going to be a similar thing where uh, certain players are going to be pointing fingers against certain positions or teams
1: against teams. It'll be a lot. We don't know. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Noah and Noah's asking, Ronaldo Lopez more likely to pitch at a Sox uniform again, or be cut to clear a 40 man spot later this season. It's a good question. I think if I had to put money
2: on it, I would say pitch again, just because we've seen with the White Sox that you can't rule out any return, um, you know, or or guys coming back when you thought they were going to be buried, like you know Rodon or Ryan Burr or you know Adam Engel. Like they're thin enough, and there isn't that much. I mean, you know, Jonathan Stever had a good turn his last time out. Lambert's had some moments, um, but you know there isn't the depth. That's currently burying him in Charlotte. So if the timing lines up, he could be a guy called up. So I think it's there, but I can also see like that he just never becomes a guy again. Just the I think there's probably frustration just kind of set in, seems like over the last few years, trying to get his stuff right and mechanical changes, not you know, not quite getting the curveball they thought they were getting, just thinking like a change of scenery would do them well kind of like how carson fulmer was let go before they absolutely had to just running out of ideas and feeling like uh nobody is doing any favors by keeping it going like they just have no answers and so uh happy trails that kind of seems like they're nearing that point
1: but seems like the white Sox aren't so rich in depth that you can count it out well, Noah, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. socks. If you would like us to answer a question or address a topic on a future episode of the Sox Machine Podcast, the best way to do that is by becoming a Patreon supporter. And our Patreon supporters not only submit questions to us, but we answer additional questions every single week and a Patreon Ver, uh, version only podcast for them where they get bonus PO socks questions they also get an ad free version of the podcast uh, and they also get exclusive content and first crack at our swag items not free crack first crack at our swag items on socks machine and we have plans starting monthly plans starting at $2 $3 and $5 and $10 a month so if you enjoy our work and you want more from us and you want to help support us, go to patreon.com slash to sign up today. And that will do it for this version of the Sox Machine podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. And the Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.
3: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality.